Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And the phone rings. Hi, Stephen. I'm going to do this Miss Janie thing where like, I, like it's so great to see everyone in the audience. Thank you for being here, especially on this holiday weekend. The Easter Bunny is going to leave you extra chocolate eggs. And I don't know what, like, for Passover, what do you get? Matzah. <laughs> matzah. An extra matzah. Anyway. <laughs> you get what? Bitter herbs. Okay. Okay. It's wonderful to see so many old friends here today. Um, so many wonderful writers, um, like Josie Martin, who has come from Santa Barbara, I think, uh, for this, and whose um, whose memoir, whose beautiful memoir, I just read in French. I'm I'm reading in French these days um, because I have a new goal, which is to be fluent by sixty. So, 25 more years, you know? I think I can do it. (laughs) Um, Thank you, too, to Skylight. Um, It's wonderful that we have this bookstore here. It's wonderful that Skylight is thriving uh, as an independent bookstore in Los Angeles. Yes. So I'm nervous. Um, some people have expressed surprise and said, Cecilia, I didn't know you were writing a novel. And I said, neither did I. So um, it's, it's really been a surprise to me. This is something I first started writing 20 years ago. So um, patience is everything. I wrote it 20 years ago, a first draft. I put it away. I forgot about it. When I pulled it out of a file drawer about 10 years ago, I wasn't even sure I'd written it. (laughs) I really wasn't. I wasn't sure I had written it. But then I recognized some things. I said, no, that was me. Um, And some of it I thought was just embarrassingly badly written. But some of it I thought was, was lovely. And so... I, I've worked, I worked on it off and on um, for another 10 years, and I submitted it a few places. I submitted it to um, an agent who couldn't take it, but she forwarded it to another agent uh, who liked French things, and I never heard from this agent, but I didn't expect to, and then I was cleaning out my spam folder once, and I found a really nasty message from this agent saying, basically who do you think you are that you can even write? So, you know, and I laughed because I thought, wow, she's got a kind of some kind of bug up her ass. You know? <laughs> and I said, that doesn't matter. It didn't matter to me. And, um, you know, I, I liked it. And I sent it to another contest, and it was a finalist. And then I sent it to Quail Press. And Gian Lombardo, the editor, said, well, I'll read it, but I can't read it for six months. I'm really busy. I'm obviously not in a big hurry about it. And um, so I was in Paris in June in the garden with some friends who also appear in this little book. And we were having one of those lovely French evenings 
in the garden, balmy weather under the trees, wine, laughter, different languages, old loves, new loves. And I went home about midnight and opened my email, and Gian Lombardo said, I'd like to publish this in a couple of months. And so here we are. <laughs> here we are. So it seems like... In some ways, it seems like it was very easy, but I do remember spending a lot of time sitting in a chair. And the friend that I'm waiting for, who I hope will be here before I I finish my blather, was actually in the other room during a lot of the time when I was sitting in the chair writing this. So um, I don't have a lot of experience reading prose out loud, but I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to read from the beginning of this now novel. It started out kind of as a collection of some prose poems and then it became a novella and then it became a novel. And I'm still having a hard time saying I wrote a novel, but I'm practicing. And um, the only thing I think you should know is that it's set in Paris in the early 90s, so about 20 years ago. And though Paris, those of us who know and love Paris think Paris is eternal, it never changes, Well, maybe Paris doesn't change that much, but we change. So those of you who are very young, this was a time before cell phones were ubiquitous, before people had GPS, when it was still possible to get lost, when sometimes you had to just throw yourself on the mercy of another human being. And if we don't do that, and if we can't get lost, how do we ever fall in love? (laughs) The novel begins with a quote um, that actually came, it's, it's Kurt Vonnegut, but it came from a conversation that I had with Mr. Steve Goldman, who's with us today. Um, a couple of nights before I was leaving for a month-long stay in Paris with very vague, tentative plans about what I was going to do. And the quotation is, strange travel plans are dance lessons from the gods. Look at my time. 20 minutes or so? One. My plane leaves for Paris in less than an hour. I'm not sure my luggage is going to hold up. A rollerboard with a zipper that sticks. A carry-on heavy with journals and books, its straps already stretched too thin. I've crammed everything I think I'll need for a month into these two bags. Mid-November, and it's 83 degrees in Los Angeles. Mid-morning, and the skies a milky blue tinged with smoggy gold. The cab drops me off at LAX. I drag my bags through the sliding glass doors into the terminal, flooded with sunlight, already sweating under the coat I've slipped on so that I won't have to carry it. I've checked the rollerboard and rushed to the gate before I remember what I forgot. I don't have a way to reach Jack in Paris. We haven't made any plans for how we'll reach one another there. I find a payphone and dial the number of his house in New Mexico, relieved when I hear his voice. 
Bonsoir, Susanna, he chirps, though it's bright day outside everywhere, except in Paris, where it's dusk. That's evening, I tell Jack. That means good evening. Oh, he says. He's coming to Paris in two weeks himself. He'll need to know how to say hello. Do you have a number in Paris, I ask. How will I get in touch with you there? Call Pierre, and he gives me the number. Pierre's English is better than Isabel's. Call him as soon as you get to Paris and ask him to call Isabel. Ask him to ask her to call me here. I want to be sure I can stay at her place. I add Pierre's number to the list of names and numbers in my notebook, a list that's grown in the past few days. And how will I find you there, Jack asks. I have no idea, I say. And then I hear my flight being called, the final call for boarding. So I pick up my carry-on and run. Two. And what am I running from? Los Angeles falling away already beneath me forever, too bright, too flat. My life as a stranger everywhere. The way I keep failing and failing at love. My fear of being trapped inside that shining flatness too. Perhaps what Baudelaire described as l'horreur du domicile. And what am I running toward that I've only glimpsed but keep longing for? A city with grit on its heels and the smell of tobacco on its breath. A river that glimmers as if with stars. A world inside the world, just out of reach, more real somehow. It's 1994. I've just turned 38 years old. An age when a woman in Los Angeles begins to disappear. Okay, I think. Disappear. Close my eyes above one city. Open them in another city halfway around the world. Three. I have this list of names and numbers and enough cash to last a month in Paris if things go according to plan. What plan? On my list are the names of people I met in Paris last summer and the names of people I've never met, the friends of friends, and the names of people who friends of my friends have met in places I've never been. <laughs> Les amis de mes amis sont mes amis. A fragile web. I've known Jack since 1989 when we met teaching poetry at a summer camp for overprivileged kids. Jack met Pierre and Isabel in Indonesia two years ago. They traveled together for 10 or 12 days. Now Isabel writes letters to Jack, and Jack writes letters to me, in which he says he can't figure it out. Pierre and Isabel used to be lovers, but now they're just friends. So they've told him, he says. I've never slept with Jack. Well, I slept with him once, but the bed was wide. That was the year I went to New Mexico to celebrate our birthdays, which fall on the same day in early November, 13 years apart. This year, he asked me to come to New Mexico again, but I had a trip to Paris planned. I won't have time, I said. 
Why don't you come to L.A. instead? I hate L.A., said Jack. So he decided he'd meet me in Paris. We'll have a belated birthday dinner, and he'll have a chance to see Isabel. A reason. A good excuse. Besides, in all his travels, he's never been to Paris. Also on my list is the name of a man, Farouk, who's promised to put me up for a month. Or so I've been assured by un ami mutuel, a woman named Karen, who I met in Paris last summer at a party of expats and French hangers-on. She wanted to stay in my L.A. apartment for the month that I'd be gone. So in exchange, she's arranged for her friend in Paris to let me stay at his place. Farouk has a big apartment, Karen's assured me, and works long hours and is rarely at home. She's explained our arrangement to him, and he's agreed to everything. Don't worry, she said repeatedly, though I've never spoken to Farouk. What I'm doing, I tell myself, is what my mother calls stepping out on faith. Nothing beneath me now but miles and miles of sky. Four. I doze off somewhere over the dark Atlantic, wake to sunlight, the smell of coffee, the drink cart rattling down the aisle. A voice announces in lilting French that we'll be landing in Paris soon. The huge wing tilts as the plane makes a graceful turn, then begins its descent through the clouds. Five. A whim. Little more than a whim. And a list of names. What brings me here? Because I found myself rushing through Paris last summer, thinking, I want to be part of this. What every woman wants to be part of such beauty, and to be beautiful finally still, though she's no longer young. What I've dreamt of these past six months, to be rushing again down the narrow streets, along the boulevards, through the gardens, under the shadowy arcades, past the shop windows full of flowers and notebooks and dresses and antique clocks, loaves of freshly baked bread and pastries arranged like jewels, and jewels and scarves and violins, delicate high-heeled shoes the color of summer sky, everything touched into place, to be touched, the smells of butter and garlic and sweat, Couples kissing in doorways, under bridges, along the quays beside the Seine. Flocks of pigeons rising like clouds, and a ragged clochard asking politely, Madame, for fire to light his cigarette. Sirens and car horns, cathedral bells. Women with voices bright as champagne walking their tiny high-strung dogs. Men who smile or sigh as I pass. The smoky cafes and gleaming brasseries, each like a painting one might step into, as if into another life, to be a figure in the crowd of figures, the glittering mirrors throw back. Six. J'arrive, he says. J'arrive. The man behind me touches my shoulder to let me know that he's still near. We're crossing a narrow street clotted with with traffic in the neighborhood called the Marais. 
He thinks I'm distracted, which I am. My first day in Paris, I've hardly slept, and he seems afraid I'm going to wander off, which I'm inclined to do. I arrive, almost winter here. The sky and the pavement, the pigeons, all gray, like a black and white photograph, like the faded antique postcards I've bought from the stalls along the quay. It's here, Mike says, and points to a storefront restaurant with a hand-lettered sign in Hebrew. Israeli food. I'm buying lunch. It's the least I can do, I say. Because he met me at the airport and helped me navigate the metro and find a room in a small hotel where I'm staying for just one night, just until I can reach Farouk. The old people smoking cigarettes at a table near the door look up when we walk in, then look away. We stand at a counter and point to the dishes we want, this and this and this, then take a tiny corner table where we can talk above the noise. Mike is one of the expats I met here last summer, a lawyer who left the States to live in Paris and practice massage therapy to follow a spiritual path, he says. I imagine him, tall and balding, walking a path through the Tuileries in his shiny shoes, his well-cut coat. I laugh and shake my head. Why not just be Jewish, I ask. Mike's eyes go suddenly small and hard, so I laugh. Just kidding, I say. The hummus is oily, the bread still warm. It's Thanksgiving Day in America. Outside the plate glass window, bearded men dressed all in black, Hasids in tall hats, heads solemnly bowed, weave in and out of the throngs of well-dressed women, well-heeled businessmen, the occasional tourist stopping the flow of traffic to snap a photograph. Yes, I think the city looks like a black-and-white photograph of itself. The ancient buildings leaning against one another, against the sky, all the shades of gray. The way I imagined as a child the world must have looked before I was born. As if I've fallen back in time. As if time has stopped and let me fall back softly into this soft gray light. J'y arrive. I arrive. Present tense. The only tense in French. I speak. <laughs> Seven. My room is a box at the turn of a stairway that seems to tilt in a narrow building in the shadow of Notre Dame, as if the whole thing might come tumbling down. My room is so crooked and small, the ceiling so low that I almost can't stand up to undress. There's a tiny sink where I wash my face and one tiny thin white towel. The toilet and shower are two flights down, dark and dank and windowless. The one window in my room opens over an alley of sooty brick. There's a black telephone next to the bed, which I use to leave a message for Farouk and a message from Jack for Pierre. I study the other numbers on my list as if looking for a clue. Then I lie down on the narrow bed. Eight. After I've slept for a couple of hours, after I've showered and dressed again, 
I rushed downstairs to the red velvet lobby, all faded elegance, smelling of must, to meet Mike, who's already waiting, perched on a rickety-looking settee. The thin man smoking behind the desk takes the key to my room from my hand, slots it into one of the cubby holes in the wall of cubby holes at his back. You must return by 1 a.m., he says. After that, the front door will be locked. We've been invited for Thanksgiving dinner at the home of some friends of Mike's, or he's been invited and I've been invited to tag along, or am I his date? They're American friends, Mike explains, as we pass through a series of gated courtyards, each gate with its code, its intercom, as if we're entering some kind of inner sanctum away from the clamor of the streets through the quiet garden, too quiet, too neat. The apartment is on the topmost floor, expensively furnished and vast, with views of the city from every window, a full-length mirror in the vestibule. My reflection seems all wrong in this place. My short black skirt and tights and sweater, my heavy unpolished boots, my long hair a dark mass of frizzy curls. The host, when he takes my coat, runs his gaze over my body, then looks past me quickly, as if I'm not there. I'm seated at the far end of the table, away from Mike. On my left, a quiet Englishman. On my right, an overweight businessman from the rich white suburbs south of L.A., getting not so quietly drunk. Beer after Lone Star beer. And how do we start on politics? You're so L.A., he tells me, pointing one thick finger at my face. He's conservative, of course, and I'm tempted to say I'm a communist. (laughs) No, I answer, I'm Susanna. Light a cigarette. Shut up. The other women are French. They sip their wine and praise the food. I try to engage them in conversation, but they don't prefer to speak English, they say. Ten. By the time it's late enough to leave without seeming impolite, it's so late that the metro has stopped running for the night. One of the French women, suddenly kind, offers to give us a lift in her car. Mike has to fold his body almost in half to climb into the tiny back seat. I ride in the front seat, watching the wet streets, so I see the police car first. A routine stop, the French woman says, as she brings the car slowly to a stop and rolls the window down. She flirts with the officer in the short blue cape until he smiles and waves us along. I get to the front door of my hotel two minutes before 1 a.m., two minutes before the front door would have been locked for the night. Glad for the shabby lobby, the warmth, the desk clerk's tired bonsoir. Do I have any messages? Not at all, he says, shaking his head. In my room, I lean out the window try to catch a glimpse of sky. It's 4 a.m. by the time I fall asleep. Keep falling. Almost dawn. 11. I dream deeply of losing things. A blue suitcase left behind. A child whose hand I let slip from my hand. 
A house in which the rooms keep shifting, familiar, then suddenly not. That I'm about to be married again and have forgotten to choose a dress. That the dress I choose is transparent, too thin, and begins to dissolve on my body almost as soon as I put it on, becoming more and more transparent with every step into twilight I take, until I'm standing in an open field in the dark, wearing nothing at all. Twelve. Bells. Not bells. Is it morning? Where? The black phone is jangling. It's well past noon. The voice I hear is a masculine voice, deep and confident and smooth. Susanna, he asks, is it you? Then, were you still sleeping? And then I'm awake. Farouk's accent is French, tinged with something more Eastern, but his English is clear and precise. So what are you doing in Paris, he laughs, and how long are you planning to stay? Then, as if by way of making conversation, he asks, where are you staying while you're here? Oh, I say, waking a little bit more? I thought I could stay with you. There's a pause, a little too long. Well, certainly for a night or two, he says, that would be fine. Oh, I think. Oh. Thirteen. We've made plans to meet at Farouk's apartment at four o'clock this afternoon. I repack my luggage and leave it downstairs in the lobby behind the desk. The desk clerk on duty, a different man now, speaks French to me, then Spanish, then Italian, then English, okay. No problem, he says. I can leave my bags at the hotel desk all day. But my room is already booked for tonight. The hotel is completely full. It's the weekend, you know, he shrugs. 14. I rush into the street to change dollars to francs, to buy coffee, to find somewhere a map. When I come back to the hotel to settle my bill, the man at the desk says Pierre has called. There's a number where he can be reached. I slip the note into the pocket of my coat. Pierre vous a rappelé. 15. Taking the metro is like playing a game, or so I tell myself. Connect the dots, follow one of the colored lines on the map, descend underground in one place, then emerge again in a different place. It seems like luck to me, pure luck, when I exit at Etienne Marcel. Walk the few blocks, find Farouk's address. I stand at the door and ring the little golden buzzer next to his name. No one comes. I ring again. I look at the numbers over the door and the numbers on my note, and they're the same numbers. No one's at home. 16. From a phone booth at the corner, I call Farouk's number and get a recorded message, the same message in French over and over again every time I dial. I try his work number two, but get the same message exactly there. By now, it's dusk and it's getting cold. I feel the first twinge of menstrual cramps. I stand in the phone booth telling myself that I'll just keep calling until he comes home. I think of hotels and the cash I have and who I can call to kill time while I wait. I dig the crumpled note out of my pocket and dial the number for Pierre. He sounds bewildered at first, 
and then surprised, and then he laughs. A friend of Jack's? And how is Jack? And how strange that I've reached him here, still at work on a Friday evening, playing some kind of silly game on the computer when he should have left an hour ago. And then he asks, so what are you doing in Paris? Where will you stay while you're here? I try to sound casual, explain my situation, tell him that I'm sure Farouk will show up again soon. Farouk will show up soon. Come here, Pierre says, sounding serious now. It's a big place. Come here and stay as long as you like. 17. I collect my bags from the hotel desk, then make my way down the narrow sidewalk across the Place Saint-André-des-Arts. A band of musicians is playing in front of the fountain, and a crowd has gathered to listen, to dance. I have to push my way through the crush of bodies, pardon, excusez-moi, then lift my roller board and carry it down the steps of the metro at Saint-Michel. It's rush hour, everyone's hurrying home, and I'm in everyone's way with my baggage, being swept along by the crowd. A trickle of sweat runs down the inside of my thigh. Or is that blood? Pierre has given me two different sets of directions, one for the metro and one for the faster underground trains called the RER. I've scrolled both sets of directions in the margins of my map. He lives in the Banlieue, the Paris suburbs, just outside the Périphérique. I've decided to take the metro because I know how it works, or I think I do. I'm sure I can find my way. I have to change metro lines twice, but finally I see a sign for a place like one of the place names I've written down, Maison Elfort or Elfortville. So I pull my bag off the train behind me and bump up the stairs to the street, then stand looking around for the bus stop Pierre said would be right there. But the street is dark and empty and wide. I'm someplace far on the outskirts of town. No shops or cafes or restaurants. No bus stop anywhere in sight. I drag my bag five blocks, six blocks, past empty office buildings and shuttered stores until I come to a phone booth in front of a Chinese restaurant. Stay where you are, Pierre says when I call. I'll borrow a car and pick you up. 18. The Chinese proprietress of the restaurant won't allow me to sit down inside not even to have a drink while I wait for Pierre. Tables only for customers, she says, only for customers having dinner, though there's not one other soul in the place. (laughs) So I stand outside on the corner and wait. Cars go by, some slowing down, the drivers staring at me as they pass. I wonder if I look like a prostitute, or some vagabond hopelessly lost, or like a tourist hopelessly out of place in this place where no tourists come. Standing there, alone in my long black coat with my bags at my side, my hair completely wild by now. What am I doing here anyway? It occurs to me that no one I know in the world knows where I am, with the exception of Pierre, who's on his way to meet me now, I hope. 
a total stranger to me. But he's Jack's friend, I tell myself, most likely another aging hippie, kindly and bearded, who'll offer me tea. Although what I really want right now is a glass of wine, a cigarette. I call Mike's number and leave a message on his machine, telling him where I'm going, just so someone will know where I am, just in case. 19. A small white car pulls up to the curb. The two men inside stare out at me. The man on the passenger side gets out and walks toward me quickly. I don't move. He's lean and muscular, quick and dark, a thatch of black hair falling over one eye. He stops in his tracks and looks at me hard. He looks confused or surprised or both. Is it you, he asks? I say nothing. Susanna, is it you? Pierre, I say. So it is. So I am. (laughs) That's all I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Now. Um, (laughs) Sometimes you think of how I felt. Oh no, this is fiction. I forgot. None of this happened. Uh, I don't know whether to do question or answer. I thought I would read one. What? Yeah, I have a question. Why do question and answer? Okay. All right. I won't. If you if you read on page sixty three of this book, you you actually get to read more about Steve Goldman. Almost everyone appears. Almost. Yeah. I thought this this little chapbook of poems also came out this year, um, which again is a surprise to me. And so I thought I would just read a couple of poems from this. Um, I'm not sure. Huh? No mercy? Yeah, read. You don't want me to read it, Steve? Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'll read a poem for Istanbul. Oh, no, that's not in this book. I always forget. It's not in here. Not Constantinople. It's not in this book, so I won't read that one. Um, I'm going to read a poem for my parents. I'll read, and then I'll read a, um, a poem about where I want to go when I die, or what I want to be when I die. Really, you know. I was talking about this to some people last night, and I, I can't even remember what the context was. I said, I don't know what. I'll be, you know, I don't know if, if we were re- reincarnated or not. I don't know. It's, it's, it seems awfully complicated to me. But, um, but I do know that this is the only chance I get to be Cecilia, you know. So think about your life that way. This is the only chance you get to be Ed, okay? Next time you may be a tree, a caterpillar. We don't know. Um, so that's the poem I'll close with. But I'm going to read a villanelle for my parents. Um, whose names were Harry and Laverne, which some people thought was pretty funny. But uh, my father, if, he would, if he'd really been named after his father, would have been called Ostapij. And uh, my mother was given the name Laverne Pearl Vishnevsky um, by a great uncle who she said was kind of a lush and he thought it sounded like really French or something, you know. So she was always... <laughs> So she was always embarrassed by this name, except that the funny thing happened. Um, after she died, 
you know, I think anybody who's lost their mother knows that you you talk to your mom after. Maybe Steve Goldman doesn't, but the rest of us do, yeah. And my mother, after death, refused to answer to her name or mom. She became Pearl. I don't know why she did that. She was mysterious. Harry and Pearl, a villanelle. My father wears shoes in the afterworld, the shiny brown dress shoes we buried him in. My mother goes barefoot and answers to Pearl, though that wasn't her name. Daddy called her girl and told us, your mother works hard, be good kids. Now Daddy wears shoes in the afterworld because he lay shoeless his last years, lay curled like a child in his bed, crying out, or he'd sing. And our mother went barefoot and answered him. Pearl was her middle name, given her slurred at birth, a drunken granduncle's grandiose gift. But our father wears shoes in the afterworld, and our mother, who followed him, ever his jewel, to wherever they've gone, in her last white dress, goes barefoot beside him now, answers to Pearl, won't answer to mother, and won't be implored. She cooked, and she cleaned, and she sang, that's enough. Now my father wears shoes in the afterworld, shiny brown dress shoes, and gives her a twirl. In his arms, she's his girl, she's his girl again, laughs. My mother, who's barefoot and answers to Pearl when I call to her, call to my sweet disappeared mother and father who slipped through my breath. My father wears shoes in the afterworld. My mother goes barefoot and answers to Pearl. (laughs) They told me I'm allowed to write to them. I'm allowed to write about them. I can't look at you, Elizabeth. I, I asked them one night in a meditation if it was okay. And they said, oh, Go ahead, honey, use our lives. We're finished with them. (laughs) Seriously. Okay. And this is uh, called Afterlife. I want to be fierce and joyful and a meadow when I'm dead. Spindly flowers and waist-high grass and the shadows of clouds across that brightness, shifting like so many ships in the sky. I want to be all in one place at last, but vast, a sea by the side of the road. I mean green, and I mean poppies and daisies, everything blooming at once. And I want to be again that girl who pushed into the wind, who stood up to the sun, big-mouthed and brave. I mean, if I'm going to die, let me live." Let me wade out into the darkest part of the night and name myself. Wild-haired bitch of the mongrel stars. Moon on her shoulders. Dirt rich. Proud. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And Heather made it. I have to hear most of it. And um, I'm happy to answer any questions from anyone except Steve Goldman. <laughs> what happens? I can live with that. I'm not going to tell you what happens. You, you've already read. You know what happens. But, uh, you know. You know, some people like when you write about them and some people don't. 
You know, some people love it. Yeah. So, it's such a it's, is it a cliffhanger? Imagine how what it was like for me. <laughs> Imagine what it was like for me. Okay. That all of it, but specifically now, Shulamut was enthralling and beautiful and virtuosic. Thank you. And moving. And I want you to know, I hate prose. I want you to know I have never been able to read a novel by a woman. I feel like I'm in a lady's locker room and I've tried and tried and tried. And the only one I ever completed was Fear of Flying, which is sheer crap. So this is a try. But there's a lot of sex in that book. It's a one criticism I guidebook to say, um I can't wait to read this and not because I'm in it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. So I'm going to thank you again to Skylight. They've got books for sale up front. They've got both the chapbook and the, the novel. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.